Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm Matt Smith. A special episode of the podcast today, in which I'm joined by the former Prime Minister of Australia, John Howard. Mr Howard held the office for 11 years from 1996 to 2007, and in that time he oversaw the introduction of the GST, the introduction of Australia's gun ban, and Australia's contribution to the independence of Timor-Leste. He joins the podcast to discuss his new book, A Sense of Balance, which is published by HarperCollins, and to discuss his interactions with Asia in his time in office and the current state of the region. Here's John Howard. Your new book is titled A Sense of Balance, and if I could summarise your thesis a bit, uh, that balance is an outstanding feature of Australia that we've achieved in, in so many areas, and your book goes into many of those areas. But how does this extend to the international arena? Is Australia a well-balanced entity, a member of the international community? I think it's something that's come through in our international relations. We are unapologetically a Western country, but we have been able to build very close um, bilateral relations with a large number of Asian countries, and it was a feature of the time that I was Prime Minister, that's between 1996 and 2007, that we built a very close relationship with China. Now, problems have developed in recent years, and those problems are still unresolved, and there's no sense in pretending otherwise. But we have always had a difficult relationship with Indonesia because our countries are very different. Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. It's got a very different history, a different culture, a different prevailing religion. But we have worked hard and we have a good relationship with Indonesia. It's had its ups and downs, it always will, but we have worked very hard on that. And of course, many of the smaller countries in the Asian region, such as Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, we've had a, developed a very close relationship with, and we had free trade agreements with Thailand, and we've had a long trade and commercial association with Singapore. Japan is the other large nation, in many respects now very much part of the Western world, but historically, culturally, and strategically not always uh, close to Australia, as everybody knows. But we have developed a very close relationship with Japan over the years, and we owe the trading relationship with Japan a great deal. Only a few weeks ago, I, along with the current Prime Minister, Mr Albanese, and two other former Prime Ministers, Mr Abbott and Mr Turnbull, went to the State Memorial Service in Tokyo to honour Shinzo Abe, who was tragically assassinated. I think it's fair to say that that sense of balance, we haven't in any way retreated from our Western character, and we don't, in my view, intend to, although debate about that. And of course, um, 
consistent with that, we've developed relations with other countries whose backgrounds are different. Although there's a merger, we have, for example, the Quad, Australia, America, uh, Japan and India. Now, there's a lot of commonality in that. It's a common commitment to democracy. And, of course, with the case of India and Australia, we're both... Uh, have an association historically through the Commonwealth. So we've done quite well at achieving that sense of balance. Given our, as you put it, Western characteristics and our obvious geography, we are closer, we are a member of Asia rather than over in Europe or North America. Do you think that we should be leveraging that advantage more, say, as a go-between for other countries, or am I maybe overthinking those two factors too much? I think you probably are overthinking it. Look, I always think that when countries set out, certainly if they set out overtly to leverage a suggested advantage, it normally ends in tears. I don't think we need, I think it is self-evident that Australia is seen as occupying um, an intersection almost of history, geography and culture. Historically, a Western country, we're in the Asia-Pacific region and we've developed these very close relations. And I found that in the time that I was Prime Minister, and I dare say others who've held that position would have found the same, that Australia was seen as being at that intersection. I never felt that Asian countries thought Australia was anything other than Australia. Now, sure, they knew that we had a long historical association with the British and with the Americans, and they knew our history. We had been involved alongside America in both the Korean War and the Vietnam War, the latter of which was extremely controversial, although not as controversial amongst some of the leaders of Asia as uh, some people in Australia suggested at the time, particularly the attitude of Lee Kuan Yew, who was very supportive of the American commitment. But that's another story, which I won't go into. But we have some time. I can't speak for years before my time. We have been seen as occupying that position. Yes, a Western country, unapologetically so. And one of the things I said when I was Prime Minister was that no country should feel the pressure to choose between its history and its geography. Mm. And we certainly have not felt under that pressure. Your book speaks of it, uses this word, you call it our responsibilities closer to home when it comes to Australia's position in the region. And I was wondering if you could expand on that a bit. What do you see as Australia's responsibilities in the region? Well, I think Australia, particularly after the Australian-led Interfet mission in uh, East Timor, Australia is seen as having a particular responsibility for the Asia-Pacific region. Mm. We led the Interfet intervention extremely well. It was difficult. It caused a lot of friction in our relationship with Indonesia. And I can understand that Indonesia may have felt uh, somewhat diminished or humiliated by it, but we got over that. And um, people appreciated the fact that the force that we put together was not just 
a white Western force. It was led by Australia and had a, a battalion of New Zealanders, but it also had a large contingent from Thailand, from Korea, and uh, from other countries in the region. And equally, when we led the um, regional assistance mission in the Solomon Islands, uh, that was a mixed group as well, and it wasn't just Australia. And I think people around the world looked at particularly Timor and said, well, this is Australia stepping up to the plate and assuming a leadership and stabilising role. And one of the consequences of that was that in the thereafter of that event, people expected more of Australia because we had done the East Timor intervention very well and very successfully. It was a very popular intervention in Australia. It was one of the few things that I've seen in my time in politics that united opinion in Australia right across the spectrum from people who might see themselves on the left of politics, people who might see themselves on the right of politics, because there are a lot of people from the World War II generation who remembered with affection that the Timorese people helped our soldiers against the Japanese. On the other hand, there, were, there, there was a very strong interest in a just outcome uh, from the Catholic Church because it had a big role in the area given the Portuguese provenance. It was one of those things that allowed Australia to be seen in a positive light around the world. And one of the consequences of that is that when they've finished sort of patting you on the back saying, well done, is, well, the next time there's a problem in your part of the world, you can look after it. That's a bit of an oversimplification, but there was uh, something of an attitude of that. Did that come at the expense, though, of a good relationship with Indonesia? There was a bilateral uh, rawness in the East Timor issue for Indonesia because we had um, suggested to President Habibi, who'd just taken over as president from the long-serving uh, military dictatorship of President Suharto, he should test public opinion in East Timor, and, and they voted for it. Now, if the truth be known, there was a divided attitude within the Indonesian hierarchy. Habibi himself didn't really care about whether Indonesia kept East Timor or not, whereas um, a lot of the military and others uh, had a strong attachment to it. Mm. And do you see that as being one of your greatest legacies in your engagement with the region? I leave it to others to talk about legacies, great or otherwise, but what it demonstrated was that Australia had the capacity to fill a leadership role. Mm. It was our largest military deployment overseas since the Vietnam War, so it was a big deployment. We led the mission. I made it very clear to the United Nations when Kofi Annan, the Secretary-General, asked for Australia's involvement, I said, we'd be involved, but um, we would want to lead the mission. Our leadership and political influence had to be commensurate with the size of our military commitment, and he was agreeable to that. I think the fact that it was done well, and I pay a lot of tribute here to General Cosgrove, who, who commanded the, the force, and also to the good relationship he had with his opposite number in the Indonesian military, and that meant that on the eve of the intervention, which after all did have ultimately the support of Indonesia, although I think it may have been support to some degree through gritted teeth, 
but they did go along with it because they realised the alternative was unsustainable. The contact between the two militaries is good, and, and I also you know, acknowledge the contribution of other countries in the region. I'm not, it wasn't just an Australian operation, although it was Australian-led. Can you foresee different situations where Australia might need to be involved in that sort of capacity in the future? Well, I can't specify one, but I accept in the world in which we live, we could. Mm. I think it's very important that we maintain our influence, and there was, there's been quite a debate about the Solomon Islands and the link between Australia and the Solomon Islands uh, versus the link between the Solomon Islands and China, and we have to be concerned about Chinese influence, which is seen as part of a broader push by China to spread her influence in the region. Every country, of course, has a right to make bilateral arrangements. And I think one of the things you've got to remember about China and those small countries of the Asian Pacific region is that many of them are as unhappy with China's expansion as is Australia. I think it has upset the Malaysians, it's upset the Vietnamese, it's upset the Thais, and it's certainly upset some of the much smaller countries. So it shouldn't be assumed that China's the welcomed friend of all of these countries. It's not. China has its own interests, and you've alluded to this before. One of the significant recent developments in Australia's alliances uh, is that of AUKUS. This is on top of, but also complementing, I guess, the Quad. AUKUS is the trilateral security pact between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States. And I'd like to argue that it was implemented by breaking a deal with France that could have benefited from a little balance in how it was implemented. So what do you think of that alliance and the implications of that? We are historical and traditional allies and over the years we've always had um, a pattern of buying a great deal of our defence equipment when we haven't been able to manufacture it ourselves from largely the Americans, but also sometimes the British. Yeah, I think the decision to go nuclear with the submarines was a sensible one. I personally had reservations about the deal that was made by the former government with the French. It seemed to me that the nuclear option should have been examined earlier I've had that view for some time, and I therefore welcomed um, the fact that we had reached an agreement with the British and the Americans. Now, as to whether we might have handled the um, severance of the arrangement with the French differently, well, that can be debated in the current political arena. I mean, France is a good friend and a close ally of Australia, but not for reasons I think everybody will understand, not quite in the same league as uh, the Americans and the British, but we shouldn't see those three countries as being in any way antagonistic. After all, America, Britain and France are NATO allies, although France has a rather truncated commitment to NATO. It's it's sort of a a take-it-or-leave-it kind of arrangement. We'll be patient about that. That's a matter for NATO countries. Australia's not a NATO country. Do you think that those sort of alliances are going to be effective to countering China in the region? I mean, we're yet to see the working out of the AUKUS arrangement. We obviously need some kind of interim submarine capacity before the nuclear subs 
contemplated by AUKUS come on stream now. Right. How that will develop is a matter for the um, current government uh, to develop, and I, and I think and hope there will be a, a large amount of bipartisanship on this, and certainly the Albanese government said at the time it supported AUKUS and it would maintain it, and, and I have no reason to disbelieve that. It seems to be that if there's going to be a, a sticking point, it will be the, the nuclear capacity and uh, how that's implemented. It can be argued that you don't need to have a domestic nuclear industry in order to have nuclear submarines. Now, not everybody agrees with that, but uh, from Australia's point of view, uh, I hope it's a commitment having been made will be maintained. And it's certainly in Australia's interest to have a bipartisan commitment to the implementation of everything that flows from the AUKUS arrangement. Undoubtedly. So one passage in your book then that caught my attention, I'll quote it here. Uh, the early months of my government, so in, in 96, has seen rocky relations with China, including the fallout from Chinese missile testing in the Taiwan Strait, disputes over ministerial visits to Taiwan, and the impact of a necessary cost-saving budget measure on some Chinese investments. Now, it strikes me that, just as an aside, that 25 years later, we are grasping with some of those same things. We've had a ministerial visit to Taiwan, not necessarily our ministry, but still there has been one. Uh, there's been missile tests as well. To continue with your quote here, a full-scale meeting with Jiang, uh, Zemin, then the leader of the Chinese Communist Party, on the margins of the Manila APAC meeting in late 1996, has seen all our differences put on the table with both sides resolving to focus on areas of common agreement as a way of improving the relationship. And it's very good and beneficial that you are able to have that relationship. Australia is now lacking those face-to-face -face connections on that sort of level with China. Do you feel that this is the case and less options available as a result to dealing with China? Yes, I do. And there's a huge difference between the attitude of the current Chinese president, Xi Jinping, and the attitude of the then Chinese president, Jiang Zemin. Jiang was very well disposed towards Australia, and he was in favour of harmonious dealings with Western countries. He didn't in any way retreat from his commitment to hardline Chinese communism, but he was an interesting man. Yeah. He um, had a great love of Western culture. He had widely read Shakespeare. He had a great appreciation of composers such as Beethoven and Mozart and Western movies. He loved them. And he was a person who I could talk to, but he was willing to sit down. Mm. The current Chinese president is not willing to do that. Now, I'm certain... I haven't spoken to him about it, but I've, I'm sure that if the um, current Australian Prime Minister received a genuine offer to have a everything-on-the-table discussion with the Chinese president, he'd, he'd accept it. I'm sure Scott Morrison before him would have done so. There has been a big deterioration in relations, and it has largely come from the Chinese side. I'm not saying that we're without fault, but it's never the situation. But overwhelmingly, it's the Chinese who've ruptured the relationship by talking about putting limits or embargoes on coal deliveries and 
complaining about the imposition of tariffs and the like when that hasn't really happened. And that relationship has deteriorated now. I think everybody would like to see it repaired because China is a big country. There are 1.4 million Australians who have a Chinese heritage. Chinese is the most widely spoken foreign language in Australia. And we have a lot in common invested in restoring the relationship. But I did have a good relationship with Jiang Zemin Mm. and he adopted the attitude of we are different and we're not going to alter our political system. That doesn't mean to say we can't have good relations. And I thought it was a highlight of the time that I was Prime Minister that on two successive days in 2003, we had an address to a joint sitting of the Senate and the House of Representatives from George W. Bush, then President of the United States, and the following day from Hu Jintao, Jiang Zemin's successor as the President of China. It sort of was seen as, I suppose, a, a testament or a triumph of the success of Australian diplomacy. Nobody thought we were in any way compromising our commitment to democracy by having Hu Jintao address the parliament. And in fact, he even asked that one of the members of the parliament, Senator Brown of the Greens, that he be excluded. And I said to the Chinese ambassador, that can't happen. Senator Brown has got a right to be there because he was elected. Oh, on what grounds? Well, because he had interjected on President Bush the day before. Oh, I see. And (laughs) Bush handled the interjection very well. Ambassador came around to see me and said, look, this is terrible and I want an undertaking that he can't. And I said, well, I can't give you that and I won't give you that because he's got a right to be there. He was elected. It's a democracy. Mm. And I said, if he breaks the rules, then he'd be dealt with. But I knew that an interjection wouldn't constitute a breaking of the rules. But anyway, the the point is that um, we had the two addresses and it was seen in a way as a high watermark of that successful relationship we'd established with large countries in our region but in a way that was utterly consistent with our close democratic links with countries such as the United States. Well, given that you're calling that a high watermark, which I'm I'm not arguing with, it was a a very different time. And now uh, we are in uh, the deepest of droughts, if I can call it that way. So part of that can be attributed to the current leadership of China, Xi Jinping. But how do you think Australia should go about moving forward with our relationship with China? Well, I think we should persevere. I think we should avoid any juvenile point scoring. We should stick up for what we believe are fundamental rights. We should certainly continue to press the Chinese on their unfair treatment of Australian citizens, and we've done that. I mean, I've personally signed several published letters uh, complaining about the treatment by the Chinese government, and we should in no way retreat. But the only thing that has been identified by the Chinese as a point of criticism was the call by the former foreign minister that there should be an investigation into the origins of uh, COVID-19. Yeah. I actually saw the interview she gave and it was quite mild. It wasn't belligerent. And I thought that was a completely reasonable request. I mean, given the pain and suffering and 
so many people, it's not unreasonable to have a proper investigation. Do you think that uh, economically Australia should be trying to diversify its interests more from China, especially in the wake of supply chain issues and economic developments brought on by the pandemic? Well, I think we should always have as much diversity in trading opportunities as we possibly can. But mind you, brings us into another area, and that's the debate about climate change, bearing in mind that a lot of our export trade to China is composed of fossil fuels. Mm. I have some reservations about the zeal that's being employed in this area by governments around the world, but that is that is another issue. But as a general rule, we should always seek alternative markets. But China is a very big market. It's such a big country. And when you think of the contribution that the industrialization of China has made to the relief of poverty over the last 20 years. And that has been in no small measure due to China's growth. And China's growth has been in no small measure due to the um, reliable supply of high-grade fossil fuels from Australia. would like to throw that into the debate about climate change. How about from the, the sake of Chinese dominance and perhaps fueling what some would see as China's rapid rise and a perhaps eventual overtaking of the United States as far as dominance goes? And this comes back to maybe uh, some of the intentions of AUKUS and the Quad to try and, and counter Chinese wider influence and growth. That's a fair question. I have what is probably a minority view at the moment. I don't accept that it is inevitable that China will overtake the United States and become the dominant economic power in the world. China's biggest single problem is demography. Mm. China will grow old before she grows rich. China has a fertility challenge. And if the present trend continues, by the end of this century, which of course... Uh, I certainly won't see, and perhaps you will, but I won't. By the end of this century on present trends, China's population could be hundreds of millions less than what it is now. Mm. And uh, I think one of the problems China's got is this, and it's trying to turn around, to use an overused metaphor, it's a very slow-turning ocean liner. And um, I think that's one of the big problems China's got. Japan has a declining population, but Japan started from a position of much greater wealth, stronger than China. So I think many people who just base their conclusions and their exhortations on the inevitability of China overtaking America uh, miss that point. And, and on top of that, you have the remarkable uh, technological skill of the Americans and their entrepreneurial flair, which always comes to the rescue. I think America in 50 years' time will still be the most powerful country in the world, and I think probably as a consequence militarily as well. It's an opinion that I don't hear very often, and I also wonder if the rise of China, no matter what rate it's going at, if that's also counted by a decline in the US. I'm consistently surprised by how polarised the US has become. The American political system is, is going through some stresses and strains, but 
it's as if the economic engine of America goes on, and that's one of its great strengths. There's no doubt uh, there's a lot of polarisation. I think the American presidential system is uh, inferior to a parliamentary system. One of the problems of American politics is that there's no leader of the opposition. And inevitably, the, the dominant figure in the public's mind is the former president, particularly when the former president keeps saying things. I don't think he's fit to hold the office again. I've said that. I said that in my book. I'm normally, I suppose, a little more sympathetic to the Republicans than the Democrats, but after his behaviour following the loss of the election, I don't think he's fit yet. His party has a problem with that, and one of the reasons is that in a presidential system, you have this huge gap. People are entitled to react negatively to what he says. Yeah, I'll let you go in a second. I just have a, a couple more things I want to touch on. One is what would be a very different situation, I imagine, if Trump was still president, which is the current situation with Taiwan. Do you watch that situation, those developments with concern? Yes, I do. And there's a certain amount of strategic ambiguity, and I think that strategic ambiguity has kept the peace for a long time. I'm not in favour of, of an independent Taiwan, mm-hmm. because that would be unacceptable to China, but equally I'm not in favour of China interfering with the present de facto arrangement. I mean, I can remember going to APEC meetings in which there were three leaders who happily conversed with each other, all I'm sure in Mandarin, the Chinese president, the Taiwanese president and the chief executive of Hong Kong. Mm. Now, they all managed to be there and to be involved in the meetings because of the understanding that APEC was a gathering of economies. Mm. I was there as the leader of the Australian economy. So I think all of that should be kept as it is. And people who think that it's a good idea uh, to bring it to a head are, are kidding themselves. I don't think the Chinese want to invade Taiwan because they don't know what would happen. It might go very badly. And if I were Xi Jinping, I'd be looking carefully at what, has gone wrong for the Russians in Ukraine. I think to myself, that's what happens when you take on a neighbouring country. I would encourage people just to remain calm about Taiwan and just leave it as it is. It doesn't conform to some textbook diplomatic plan, but the important thing is we haven't had a blow-up in all these years and we ought to keep it that way. And if that means we've got to preserve this strategic ambiguity, let's preserve it. And if that means questions about would we or wouldn't we if something else happened, we should continue to leave those questions unanswered as well. I hope that's what the current Australian government is doing. Whether it is or not, I don't know. But if they're sensible, and I'm sure there are a lot of people in it that are sensible, uh, that would be their approach. So just to finish up then, even if you don't want to talk about it in these senses, you do have a lasting legacy from your your leadership of Australia in the region. And I was wondering if you could reflect on that and if you think Australia is a stronger member of the Asian region in the years since your prime ministership and what you think of the way it's developed. Well, I think there's been a continuity in Australian foreign policy stretching back not only the time that I was prime minister, but before that. I think what my government did was to strengthen the traditional 
ties we had with America and Britain, but not in any way at the expense of our relations with Asian countries. I thought we did a very good job in building a sensible, pragmatic relationship with China. Mm. We continued the relationship with Japan and strengthened it, but that goes back a long way. The, the, the great breakthrough with Japan was the 1957 commerce agreement that was negotiated by the then Deputy Prime Minister uh, John McEwen in the Menzies government, and that was a remarkable thing. It was only 12 years after the end of World War II. And I think we left a good relationship with various countries. I think the strength of my government's approach was that we tended to approach relations in a bilateral fashion. Mm. And I'm in favour of multilateralism when it works, but often multilateralism doesn't work. And the only way you can improve a relationship is to fashion it on a bilateral basis. And one of the differences that my government approached these things was in that area. The Labor Party historically has always been more strongly in favour of multilateral organisation. Now, as I say, I'm in favour of multilateralism when it works, but often it doesn't work. Mm. And I think the strength of the United Nations, for example, is often to be found in its specialist bodies. It's refugee work, which has been very good, World Health Organization with, with some missteps, but overall very good. Whereas at a general assembly level, not so impressive. I mean, you get these absurd results that you had recently where um, China managed to avoid censure from the Human Rights Council uh, uh, in relation to its treatment of the Muslim egos. Now, everybody knows that they're being persecuted and discriminated against on the strength of their religion. And I thought it was an open and shut case, but somehow or other China managed to get out of that. Well, that's an example of how the United Nations doesn't work, where if you put too much faith in multilateralism, you'll get you'll have a lot of disappointment. We tried to avoid that, but when we left, we had a good relationship with China. And I'm talking about when, in 2007, to a while, it's 15 years ago now, we had got rid of the absurd ban on uranium sales to India. I mean, we had this ridiculous situation inherited from a former Labor government that you could sell uranium to China and Russia, but you couldn't sell it to India. That seemed to me to be a complete outrage. And we had initiated free trade discussions with Korea. We'd always had a good relationship with Korea and we signed a free trade agreement with Thailand. So by approaching the Asian region on a bilateral basis rather than a multilateral one, I think you get further because they're very different countries. Mr Howard, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Very nice to talk to you. Cheers. That was John Howard, former Prime Minister of Australia, and you've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on any readily available podcatching platform. And you can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.